Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Hi, Gross Anatomy podcast listeners. This is Lauren Taylor. In today's episode, we are very excited to have Dr. Leo Gordon on the show. He's been a mentor of Dr. Jason Cohen's for a very long time. And since January is Mentor Month, we thought this would be a perfect podcast for people who are thinking of becoming a doctor or just looking for a mentor. Unfortunately, because of the doctor's schedules and at different places via Zoom, the original intro of this podcast was cut off. So we're just going to get right into the heart of the episode. Thanks for tuning in. Dr. Gordon, you might have listened to it. We had an episode of the podcast where we interviewed Sam Shem, Dr. Shem, who wrote House of God. And in that book, you know, it talks about how the doctors, the teaching doctors were really mean, the up and coming doctors and how they taught was a lot different than how it is now. I was wondering if you kind of experienced some of that when you were coming up as a doctor. I tell this to everyone that asks about it, came to work every day knowing that you could be fired for a mistake. Uh, So there was uh, really intense uh, pressure to perform and, and to excel. And that is reflected in the house of God. House of God may be a satire, but the a brilliant satire is very, very close to the truth without being the truth. And that, uh, that book is a very accurate reflection of the time frame in which it came through. Look, look, looked at through the lens of 2021, uh, it's, it's sexist, it's chauvinistic, it's patriarchal. I mean, it could never... Uh, uh, withstand today's scrutiny, but it's an accurate representation of, you know, what I went through. And Dr. Cohen knows a lot of people. Uh, he came through later than I did, but the system still had some strict elements to it. So then, how do you approach your students or being a mentor today, like other other doctors or people who want to become a doctor today? Well, I I, I approach it with an, an, a certain an element of strictness. I mean, okay. I, I I don't I I think uh, I never. Unlike today, I never had a teacher or an instructor or an attending who wanted to be my friend. He was not my friend. He was my um, uh, chief, my leader, my uh, uh, professor, professor, boss, my professor. There was a distance, distance there, uh, which was uh, which was very different. So I, I for the, the students with whom I deal and the residents with whom I deal and, and Dr. Cohen, you remember the case uh, I assisted you with? The other day, that particular resident, that was exactly yes. that was exactly my approach. It was pointed questioning, minus the uh, threat and minus the uh, embarrassment factor. Right. And, that, and I think I think that's that's better than uh, the old method of uh, repeated uh, questioning uh, that that used to go on. To some degree, still does, but certainly not to the degree. That it did in the past. When you were when you were coming up as a as a resident, they used to like to embarrass you. Like that was part of the teaching. It, it, absolutely, absolutely. I it was it was. Uh, well, you were embarrassed if you didn't know the answer. Okay. And the uh, imba- it, I'll tell you one thing: the embarrassment made you get the answer. Right. Right. There, there's no question because and, and I, I was going to interrupt for a second, saying that I actually think that. Some of my, some of the situations where I was very embarrassed by my attendings, as horrible and as traumatic as those experiences had been, I probably learned the most and remembered those lessons the most, I must say, and remembered those points better 
and made sure not to make those same errors or mistakes in reading a book or someone telling me something. Well, uh, Jason, I'll tell you One how thing. far the pendulum has swung. I mean, you, uh, in that system, as a attending or as a professor, you'd be accused of creating a hostile work environment and uh, you would get uh, disciplined. And one of the um, uh, themes of uh, surgical education today is that that type of embarrassing pointed questioning in a group setting has led some students to say, this is a hostile work environment. I'm being singled out X, Y, Z with, with uh, disciplinary action against the teacher or the educator. So you walk, you walk a fine line these days. But so you think it's, it's maybe a little to like the detriment of their education though, that you have to like kind of be on your tiptoes more or? There is no question. It's a detriment to the, to the education because Dr. Cohen makes a good point. You remember, you know, surgery is like life. You're only remembered for your biggest mistake. That's, that's just the way it is. So the idea is, you know, don't make the mistake. And if you're making rounds and the professor says, well, you know, Mr. Gordon, what are the five types of tracheoesophageal fistulas in children? And you didn't know. Trust me, when that was over, you would go to the library, go to now go to the Internet and you would know and you would never, ever forget it. That's um, yeah. So I don't know how real like any of the medical shows that we watch are, but kind of on Scrubs, they do a little bit of that, too. Like they do a little bit of um, demeaning, like a little embarrassment. But I guess that was that was probably shot like almost 15 years ago today. So it's probably changed even since then. Well, if you want to, your podcast has a link to pop culture. If you want to know the template for medical education, there's this marvelous show on Netflix called Charité. Oh, I don't know that one. T-H-A-R-I-T-E. Now, there's two series. There's Charité and then there's Charité at War. Charité... Uh, is uh, the main hospital in Berlin at the turn of the century. And if you look at that series, it's German with uh, English subtitles. If you look at that series, that is the template that was brought to America as far as medical education goes. It was rigid. It was uh, uh, severe. uh, But when American educators, uh, medical educators, started traveling around Europe, the first place they stopped was uh, Germany because that was the the, uh, world capital of medicine, and that's the template they used. Charité is an excellent, excellent series that I tell particularly artists. What is it on, Netflix? On Netflix. And what years years is it taking place? Uh, It takes place, well, there's two two series. There's Charité, which is late 1800s, and you get to meet all the greats of medicine. You get to meet Verkow and Bill Roth and Koch and... It's very, this series is interesting because it was uh, just at the introduction of the, of the uh, germ theory and bacteriology, particularly the relationship between the doctors and the nurses. See, the doctors were discovering pathology and bacteriology and all these wonderful things, but the nurses felt that your illness was God punishing you for a moral failure. So why are these why are these doctors looking at the microscope and washing their hands? It's really, I've watched it a couple of times. It's really, really well done. You know, you've mentioned it to me and I apologize. I, I haven't seen it. Part of the reason is, is 
it takes two in our family to watch a show. So you got to get the other person that you're watching the show with to be interested in it. But I, I'm going to try to watch it now. You've, you've told me about it a couple of times. Yeah, it's, I, I, I will put it on my list of shows to watch now. Well, it's, it, it's Charité, which is the best one. And, and they, you know, the Charité Hospital, there were some fascinating characters in World War II. And the second season is Charité at War. Let me okay. ask you. Um, getting back to you and your education a little bit, could you tell us, do you remember a story of some trauma that you might have experienced by, it doesn't have to be trauma, but some, some experience from a mentor or professor who harassed you, like something that happened to you that really sticks with you still? Either, uh, it, actually, tell us a good one and a bad one, if you don't mind. Well, there... <laughs> there were there were there were a lot of good ones. Yeah, I mean there were a lot. Of, you know, after uh, there were people who took me aside and said, "Listen, this is part of medicine. Don't worry about it. Uh, you'll do better next time." And there were those who were uh, less collegial and said, "You know, said I don't want to scrub with this uh, resident anymore. Look, look what look what happened in the last case. Uh, let me give you an example. Let me give you a crystalline crystalline of, example of yours of mine. Yeah, you're on call." as an intern, and uh, the a patient is scheduled for a vascular procedure, an operation on the, on the blood vessels, and he's listed for 7.30 the next morning. And you go to talk to the patient, he starts vomiting blood. So you uh, transport the patient to the ICU, you cancel the case, but you don't tell the attendant. Okay, so the attending... You mean you forget guy, to tell the attending? No, you, you, you were so wrapped up in the care, you, you didn't... So the attending shows up and said, you know, if you're the kind of resident who doesn't have the courtesy to call the attending uh, uh, about a problem with this patient, there's no, there's no... You have to understand there's no future for you in this discipline. And I said, okay, I, I, I understand. So a couple months go by. Same Wait, let me back up. Did you cry? No, okay. I never cry. I only okay. cry when I get my tax bill. That's it. <laughs> okay. uh, for those in the back here, that was humor. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so uh, J a couple months go by. Uh, the surgeon schedules the same case. And I go, to I go to see the patient. The guy's having crushing chest pain. Get a cardiogram. He's having an acute heart attack. I cancel the case, but I call the doctor. I said, you know, this is Dr. Gordon, Dr. X, your patient's having crushing chest pain. He's having a heart attack. I'm moving him to the cardiac unit. So the guy says to me, you know, if you're the kind of resident that has to call the attending <laughs> for problems like this, there's no future for you in this profession. <laughs> then I understood it. Then I get, then I got it. Yeah. You know, it's like it's did like, that really uh, did that really happen though to you? Or you're joking. That is a true story. That is, as we say in the trade, emis, which is the Yiddish word for truth. Wow. That's then I understood. Good. Then yeah, I understood. Catch twenty two. It was beyond catch twenty two. <laughs> yeah, but that's things were like that a little bit back in the day. Back in your day, less so in my day. Now, yes. not at all. Yeah, I uh, the the uh, the the book that covers it accurately is called uh, the Making of a Surgeon by William Nolan, uh, that, that's uh, a more accurate, uh, balanced view of surgical training. And I think if you take the time frame, it's probably the same time as House of God. Huh. Did you, I had, did you ever see an attending 
make a resident or medical student cry? Uh, I don't. I don't think I, I don't think I have. I, I've seen uh, an attending make a resident resident walk away. Right. I, I can't recall. I've seen I've seen something that you are very interested in a bit, um, and have even had leadership role across the country in is the morbidity and mortality meeting. The yeah, you, you covered that in one of your podcasts. Yes. Exactly. And I actually back in my day, our our M and M meeting, morbidity and mortality meeting, was a very malignant meeting back in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, State University in New York at Brooklyn. It was a very scary meeting in a huge auditorium. And I saw people cry. I saw people break down and cry, whether they were up at the podium presenting or in the audience, you know, the students or residents getting grilled. I saw some scary stuff. Well, I don't think I've ever seen crying. I've seen embarrassment. Right. Uh, I've seen, you know, shoulder shrugs, quizzical looks. I don't think, uh, I don't think I've ever seen crying, but it, it, you, the Morbidity Mortality Conference, whenever anybody asks me what's it like, I, I ask Annika what they do for a living. I say, think about the biggest mistake you made in the last week and present it to 30 of your colleagues. Right. And, you know, not all your colleagues like you, but some of them are sniping for you. Some of them are loyal to you. So it's, uh, it's the most, it's most important uh, weekly meeting, particularly now where you can get all the didactic stuff in your pajamas on a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Right. Without having to schlep to the hospital. And this was before COVID. Yeah. And a, a lot of the doctors just want to show how smart they are and assassinate there, you that way. Uh, there's a, uh, there's some element to it. It's a, it's a fast, it is a fascinating weekly meeting at every level. It is medical, a great learning meeting. Medical, personal, political. It has flaws, yeah. which I've taken great efforts to correct. Right. Uh, but uh, it's uh, it's uh, just ingrained into the culture of surgery. I, the, there's the pre-med program at Cedars-Sinai, which I, I help run. Our students get a chance who are rotating on the surgical service, get a chance to go to that meeting. And they they're in awe of that meeting, what they see, what they learn, what they hear. They re, even today, I, I, even though it's not as crazy as it used to be, it's it's really interesting, like you said, to hear about stuff that's gone wrong and people really discuss it. Why did it go wrong? How did it go wrong? You made a mistake and you're admitting it and you're talking about it. That's that's amazing. Well, the benefit for the students, Jason, is they learn the language of medicine. Right. Every the time your students go there, we go back to the office and we list all the terms that were thrown around and, and they're going to be way ahead of uh, uh, students applying to medical school or pre-med who haven't had that experience. Yeah. Imagine if other professions did that too. That would, that would be very interesting if every week. Well, uh, the other professions, I'm sure there's quality control in every, That's uh, true. In, in every profession, but in every, the, we're, we're the only profession where, I mean, if you're on the line in Detroit and you make a mistake in a carburetor, that's a hell of a lot different than uh, digging out a gallbladder and making a mistake with a common bile duct. We, not to- Or killing someone. Or killing someone. Yeah. Yeah. One, one thing though that bothers me is, uh, and, and then I want to get back to the topic of mentoring, is you see everybody talks about in the hospitals, the, all the people in the suits about limiting errors and bringing the error rate down to zero and complication rate down to zero. 
And what I tell what my joke is, yeah, we can totally reduce errors down to zero. We totally can. There's one way to do it. You get rid of the patients. Uh, there will never be a zero incidence of error in medicine. Correct. Never. Correct. That, I said this a thousand times. Medicine is not like chemistry. Every time in chemistry, if you add hydrogen to oxygen, you're going to get water. Every single time, now and forever. But in medicine, and I'm not saying this just to uh, aggrandize the host here, the case I assisted you with the other day, that, that was a marvelously done case. Thank you. Safely, safely done. <clears throat> Bad person, and I, the, I, the, we, I talked about it to the resident afterward, that person could have a wound infection, a pulmonary embolus, a post-op heart attack. It, you know, it's a biologic system. Well, just look at the uh, reactions to the COVID vaccine. Yeah. You know, so it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it'll never be zero. Have you ever had a doctor or professor really take you under their wing? Uh, no, I have had chief residents. When I was coming through, the instructors were the chief residents. Right. And maybe this was a Boston thing, you, you know, uh, but I never, I mean, I had some people help me. Some people gave me suggestions, but I never, I never, there were some surgeons I respected and I wanted to be like that, but I never had a, uh, a true mentor until I got into practice. And when you did get into practice, you actually find, found you did have a mentor, a true I was, mentor? I was very lucky. I joined a two-man surgical group, and they had a vested interest. See, a mentor really has a vested interest in your success. Now, you can pollute that with, with money, because the better I did, the better they did. Right. But, but they had a vested interest in my success, and they had a very uh, gracious willingness to help me deal with my failures. And that's, that's, that's a mentor. You asked uh, a, a question about mentoring. That's what a mentor does. A mentor in any profession, it shouldn't be just a monthly Tuesday afternoon, how's it going meeting? I mean, these guys, you know, they came in at two in the morning. They helped me with difficult cases early in my career. They helped me with the post-op care, the pre-op evaluation. They were just, uh, I learned more in three years in, in practice than I did in the previous six years of training. That's great. I, I actually feel like other than you, uh, and, and we've had an interesting ongoing relationship where I, I almost consider you like a college roommate more and a mentor because we shared a room about the size of uh, a closet for several years together as when we first start, when I first started out. A small office. Yeah. A very small office. Um, other than you, I feel like I've had people kind of help me a little bit along the way, but I, I don't really feel like I've had a, a real mentor uh, along the way. Uh, well, I'm not surprised to hear that. Yeah. Uh, because uh, it's, it's an effort. It's an extra burden. You know, you have your own life, you have your own practice, your own, and who needs this? But it's always been part of the grand tradition of uh, medicine, particularly in the private uh, practice sphere. Yeah. Uh, as far as the full-time academic employment sphere, I hope there's some type of uh, mentoring. And and having the pre-med program, I do. One of the things we do is we interview the different doctors coming on the program. Yes. And I really like to grill them from the start of their career to where they are today. And I envy 
and, and the ones who I who seem to have been really super successful, not all of them, but a lot of them in their discussions tell me, tell us, the students in our group, about how lucky they were that they found someone that really shepherded them along the way. That they whether it was someone's father who was a surgeon too, or or just someone else who was in that field who said, hey, come on. Yeah, no, you're, you're very lucky if you can find someone like that. But, you know, me- mentoring the word, the word itself, it has sort of a uh, fuzzy, sweet tone to it. And a lot of people forget that mentor uh, is a person's name. You know, me- mentor should be spelled with a capital M because in the Odyssey, when Odysseus was schlepping around the world on all of his adventures, he had a son. He left a son and uh, he needed someone to bring up his son. And Odysseus had a friend called Mentor. And Odysseus's son, Telemachus, Mentor, brought up Telemachus. And this guy, Mentor, at least through the myth of history, was tough. I mean, he was a tough, uh, har- a harsh uh, taskmaster, but he had. Uh, um, a obligation to bring this kid up. Very few people know that mentor was an individual. There's a lot of controversy as to in uh, Greek and uh, Roman mythology about the uh, true nature of mentor, but that's how I. You see that, Lauren? That see, listeners. Yeah. That's what Dr. Gordon is. He's he's not just he's a medical historian. He loves linguistics it sounds like you'd love the derivation of words that's something in the operating room you're always asking the staff the the sometimes the students the residents how how a word came about how some name of an instrument came about that i i love that about you well i just and i hate it i love it i i didn't even think where that word came from well yeah, I've I, heard something new. i'll tell you i just you know i've worked with dr cohen um a long time, and I just and not to get competitive here, but I just finished my third podcast for General Surgery News on how the organs got their name. Okay. And Lauren, I will forward them to you. I think you, yeah. I think, I think I would... you get I think you get a kick out of it. And it, I'll tell you how it started. About two years ago, I was assisting my partner with a case. And we were looking, uh, a resident was there, we were looking at the pancreas, which is the big gland that sits behind the stomach that makes insulin and digestive juices, helps you, uh, you know, do the uh, cheeseburger uh, through your GI tract. And I talked to the resident and I said, you know, where are you from? What are you doing? He said, well, I just finished up two years at X university. I said, what were you doing? He says, I was doing research on the pancreas. So the case goes on a little bit. And I, I looked at the kid and I said, why do they call it the pancreas? And he, he looked at me and he said, well, I don't know. And I said, and once again, once again, not harshly, very collegial. I said, well, don't you think it's odd that you studied the human organ for two years? And so that, yeah. that, led, that led to these other other podcasts. I think you get a kick out of it. I get no, I like that. I love a, a good origin story. And yeah, no, this is, uh, this all started uh, back in uh, Boston and Dr. Cohen asked about my training. You know, you'd ask for an instrument and you'd have the instrument in your hand and the attending would say, what's the name of that instrument? And I'd say, well, this is a coker clamp. And the guy would say, well, who is coker? You know, and you wouldn't know. And then they would say, do you ever think there'll be, do you ever think there'll be a Gordon clamp? 
<laughs> so it, it all started it all started there. And I I don't know if you grew up where we where you grew up, Lauren, but in Boston, there's this deep, uh, almost annoying historical thread uh, that runs through uh, 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 everything, and that spilled over into the into the surgical. You're kind of like the character from the dad in my big fat Greek wedding. I don't remember. Uh, that was the guy that kept spraying Windex for everything. Right. Who, yeah. also, who also <laughs> talk about the derivation of every word coming from the. That was that was uh, Alani Kazan, and also in my big fat Greek wedding, the male lead was in the movie I bought you, Doctor Cohen, about ten years ago, called Dinner Rush. John Corbett. John, he, that is one of the most underrated, if not the most underrated restaurant movie ever made. That was a very good movie. I agree. I, a, you, I learned from you not to say a great movie. No, great movie. There's only about 10 of them. And so, Lauren, one of the reasons why Dr. Gordon and I, I'm, I'm going to say it. I don't know if it's reciprocated, but one of the reasons why I love Dr. Gordon so much, I was going to say one of the reasons why we love each other, but Dr. Gordon might reserve <laughs> that word. But one of the reasons why we get along fairly well is our shared interest in movies and TV and pop culture. So I was just going to say, I think he's our guest with Artie, like the most references that I've written down on things I actually want to read, watch and listen to. Oh, there's, I, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, it, I am, you know, you talk about pop culture. I, I must say, I've listened to 10 of your podcasts. I, I'm, I may not be your demographic, but I hope this interview puts, you know, uh, yeah. a bridge you know, between the uh, the uh, different... Uh, the old and the new. Well, the uh, experienced and the new. I, I would please avoid the word old. But... Um, uh, I have a quick question. So you're saying like mentor, like the origin of the word meant that you should be a little harsh. It doesn't mean like you're best friends. Do you think younger doctors expect to just be great friends with their mentors and that's kind of a problem? I do. Okay. I do. Uh, and by the way, I must say a really good friend is going to be harsh on you also. True. That's good. So, uh, but uh, this whole mentoring, it's just kind of been uh, a bit sugarcoated uh, mm -hmm. over the last, uh, over the last years. And um, I, I, you just, as I told the doctor, you need someone with a vested interest in your success and a clear identification on how you deal with your failures. How, what would you tell a youngster coming up today how to locate, find, and list a mentor? In what field? Whatever any, field. Any field? Well, you, you, you or find... So let's say medicine. Let's say medicine. Well, that's, you have to rely on their reputation. You know, uh, I, when I was offered this job with this group, uh, the first thing I did I called uh, the medical center and I said, please page the chief surgical resident on call. And this kid picked up the phone and I said, what do you think of, uh, I'm applying for this job, what do you think of ABC? And, you know, got information that way. But word of mouth is very strong in every uh, uh, field. And that's probably the best way to find out who, who the uh, who the, who the good mentors are, who the good teachers are. So say I, student or young doctor, identified Dr. Gordon to be someone who I would love to be my mentor. What do I need to do to make Dr. Gordon interested in mentoring me? What, what, what should, how do I get that to happen? 
you know, it's very interesting. That has happened to me with several of your students uh, over the years. And the uh, concept is con is not constant, but frequent communication. You know, I get emails on a regular basis from some of your students. In the, and by the way, Dr. Cohen runs this fantastic uh, program uh, at the medical center for uh, college students interested in medicine. And uh, they stay in touch with me and, and their medical school application process, the medical school exam process. And uh, of course, I'm, I'm a little bit late in my career to be a true surgical mentor, just for the simple reason that the technology has changed so much. But, you know, so many things stay the same, then I think I can help them get started. It's funny. I, there's a, a chief of surgery at, at a certain hospital that I wanted to try to build some kind of rapport with for the sake of myself. And I, and I, I feel like I've made some efforts and I've always felt like nothing. I've gotten nothing from that person. And is it because of that person just doesn't like me? Is it because I've done something? Should I give it up? Should I keep trying? Um, it, it, it interests me that, that thought I've reached out to, you hate that term, but I've reached out to a certain individual and, and I've just gotten just schmaltz, but no substance. Maybe it, it's a, maybe you're a competitor. Perhaps. Maybe uh, there are financial things involved, you know, surgeries uh, uh, in the private practice setting you want to do. If the case needs to be done, you want to do it. I mean, right. you, you didn't take a vow of poverty when you passed your boards. Um, and, may, you know, maybe you're just not everyone's cup of tea. That's probably it, too. I, I mean, I think, you know, pe yeah. people, are, people are people. Yeah. You know? yeah. For example, you're wearing a baseball cap. You need a haircut. You know, I, I, you have a beard. You haven't shaved in three days. I, quite frankly, find it quite annoying. Well, <laughs> you must be really here suit to say that it's just three days. This is two weeks, Leo. Two weeks. Well, you, if, <laughs> if, if that's two weeks, you better start taking some androgen. <laughs> <laughs> any, other, any other thoughts that you want to leave us yeah. with? I know. I have yeah. a question about like the M&Ms. You were talking about like doctors just basically confessing what they did wrong. What are what are like the repercussions for something like that? Well, you know, you know, it's not a confession of doing something wrong. It's a discussion of a complication. Okay. Uh, not every complication in surgery is the result of doing something wrong. As I said earlier, it, it's a biologic system. You can do the perfect operation and you can have a death. Uh, so your, your question is what happens to the doctor uh, discussing a complication? Right. Well, the very fact that he or she has reviewed the complication and presented it in a group setting plants a seed that will pre hopefully prevent that complication from happening to him or her in the future. Okay. You see, I, I embarked on this grand plan to change the nature of that uh, conference God, it must be about 10 years ago. And because uh, the, the failure of the conference is that when the conference is over, all the error reducing and complication reducing lessons seem to evaporate. They just, you know, they, they probably last for 24 or 48 hours, which is ridiculous. I've likened that meeting to a hitherto undiscovered tribe in the Amazon that doesn't have a written language. Okay. You know, well, that meeting is supposed to be a safe space, though, isn't it? To some degree, like you're not supposed to 
get into trouble for your complications. Well, legally, you can't. I mean, that's protected by the law. That is, that is a, uh, a patient improvement safety effort. But, but um, there should be some way. And by the way, Dr. Cohen, you're, you have a scribe in the office, right? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> Medical scribes. Talk about history repeating itself. Medical scribes are, number one, it's a good job. Number two, it lets the doctor look at the patient and not the computer screen. I want to try to institute medical scribes at the M&M conference so they can de-identify all the issues and edit it and distribute it as error and complication reducing information. I tried to do that for 11 years. And all the great institutions in America looked at it and said, Dr. Gordon, it's a great idea. It's just too much work. I actually thought that. I was like, can you pass out what you learn? Like, is there something you can go to, a link you can review? I did that for 11 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, you know, you get a little older, new people are coming up. It's like any other business. Okay. And, uh, uh, but I still, I'm still working on it. And uh, I'm toying with the idea of of presenting it as a, some way of, of learning from error. And that's that's what surgery, that's all in medicine is learning. What do you do? What do you do if at that that if at that morbidity and mortality meeting, every week the same guy has similar complicate or just r- repeated complications? That's is there? Have, what do you do? That's why we have chiefs of surgery, right? And that's why we have chiefs of surgery. That that's why. Hey. Listen, have you ever been called into the chief of uh, surgeons, uh, chief of surgery's office? Not in a very long time. My my uh, partner told me this great story. He was called chief of surgery office. You walk in, this is before the EMR. There were four charts. This was before chiefs of surgery were CEOs of multi-million dollar enterprises. This is the day when chief of surgery, their number one job was education. Their number two job was staffing. The number three job was growing the department. Number four was raising money. And there were four charts. And my partner, my ex, my former surgical partner told me, the chief of surgery said, listen, you did a hernia repair on patient A, patient got a wound infection because of a break of technique, you used the wrong kind of mesh. You did a colon resection on patient B, the uh, stoma, which is the part of the intestine brought out to the skin, became ischemic. You didn't mobilize enough. On patient C, you did a parathyroid resection. The calcium didn't come down because you didn't explore the other side. On patient, and it was it was unbelievable. Right. And that sets the tone for uh, what chiefs of surgery do. Or now with administrative uh, complexity, what associate chiefs or vice chiefs or whatever they're called do. You know what I think there really needs to be, and, and there isn't, at least at the institution where we are, there needs to be a day that maybe once a month, every surgeon is, is either paid to, to not operate on their patient and is told to go into someone else's room and scrub, and it, not even in the same specialty, even in like do an OBGYN case or an orthopedic case and of all levels so that you could continuously see what the other people are doing, see different techniques, maybe mentor, maybe give some pointers, 
because everybody's got these really cool, interesting tools that are built for this thing that maybe could translate to something else. But then also there's, there's guys who are towards the end of their career who are going to stop soon, who wouldn't it be great if they would go around and give a little wisdom to each of these other people? Why isn't that around? Why doesn't that that happen? Well, uh, that uh, depends how involved you are in uh, education and, and, and training residents. I am notorious. Notorious. It's one of my great joys is waiting for a case to start walking from room to room, just putting, when I've been there a long time, I'm not there to criticize anyone or inspect anyone. It's just unbelievable. The pathology, what goes wrong with the human body? I mean, the case we did the other day, you know, they're doing a hip in one room, they're doing a parathyroid in another, they're doing a hysterectomy in another, they're doing a pediatric case in another. It's just uh, why medicine is 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 so fascinating. But uh, uh, you you've raised a very uh, interesting point, Jason. The only person who can do that is the chief of surgery, right? right. And I've said for many years there should be two chiefs of surgery. There should be a CEO, the chief right. executive officer, and a CEO, which is a chief educational officer. I agree. I but agree. don't don't forget education. It, it does not generate income. Right. We're living in a uh, in economic times now, particularly with the uh, with this uh, pandemic and the suspension of most elective surgeries. It's uh, going to be, uh, you know, quite an interesting couple of years. Very true. I so you guys kind of glossed over how you first started together like twenty years ago. Can I have a little bit of that history? How you guys first met? Do you yeah. remember what your first meeting was like? I remember where I met you. Do you remember where you met me? What is this, J-Date? No, I don't. <laughs> it is. It's when Harry met Sally. Remember yeah, that, that I, the scene when the, the couples are on the couch? Yeah, I don't remember when I... I remember. Um, I had just finished a surgery with Dr. Silberman, who's the reason why I'm in L.A., who's a friend of yours and colleague and friend of both of ours. And he said, hey, Jace, let's go to Jerry's Deli across the street. My friend Leo is going to meet us there. Right. That's right. And you showed up to Jerry's Deli, and the rest is history. Yeah. Well, uh, Jason, you've been a very happy accident in my life. You're right. <laughs> not, to, not to gild the lily here, Dr. Cohen, uh, despite his innate annoyance of being from New York, is, is, a, is a very a good doctor and a good surgeon. And, you know, it always cracks me up when somebody will say, uh, Dr. X is a good surgeon, and they've never seen him operate. You know, they may say he's a good surgeon because he has a low complication rate, and I know that, but I've seen Dr. Cohen operate under a variety of circumstances in many different cases. And uh, when I need my parathyroid removed or my gallbladder removed, I know who I'll go to. Thank you. Thank you. you. I don't know what you're agreeing with me. No, I'm just (laughs) (laughs) The, The other thing is, randomly, it could be a weekend, it could be a night, it could be who knows when. I'll get this random text out of the blue. You're coming for leftovers? And I'll read it and I'm like, oh, he must think I'm his son, Jason. So he has a son, Jason, also. And every now and then I'll accidentally get Jason texts. I'm I'm surrounded uh, surrounded by Jason. It would be amazing if you just showed up to his house. Don't even respond. Just say, I'm ready for the leftovers. (laughs) It's true. I should one time. You showed up at my house once. He left me a Frank Sinatra cutout. I've had it in my living room for, uh, well, that was a long time ago. It must be about 10 years ago. That was a nice party. Do you guys fight over sports teams since you're from Boston, you're from New York? Any, uh, any animosity about that? Uh, no, not, 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 uh, not, not 
too much. I my uh, taste for sports has ebbed. Oh, okay. Ebbed a little bit. And I'm and I'm Leo's much bigger sports guy than I am. I hockey is a is a big actually a friend of mine. We're we're totally off topic, but a friend of mine, out of the blue, I have this a text group of my buddies that I grew up with sent a clip, you'd appreciate it, Leo, from I think 1977 of a Ranger Bruins hockey game at Madison Square Garden that I was at where Phil Esposito on a breakaway at the end of the game had the chance to tie the game and Gene Rattel was the goalie of Boston made the save and 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 uh, Esposito runs into the locker room and the next thing that happens is, could you, do you remember? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. That was a great rivalry though. It, the fight breaks out and then goes into the stands. Oh, remember yeah, that think, game? Think, yeah, a brawl in the stands with the spectators. What yeah. a game. Yeah, it was a great rivalry. It was a great game. I would have to say uh, now that the Patriots are done, that uh, hockey uh, really is my favorite sport. Although I liked it better when the players were farm kids from Calgary rather right. than, you know, multi-millionaire superstars from Finland. But uh, I, I came through uh, in Chicago and Boston at the height of uh, hockey mania. And uh, I, lo- I love the sport. It's a great sport. I have a I have another quick question about rivalry. Again, to reference like the show Scrubs, just because that's what I'm watching, and that's like our audience's favorite medical show. Um, they always like fight over surgeries, like who's going to get what surgery. Like the surgeons, the young surgeons are always wanting the surgery. Does that actually happen? Like, do you guys have you guys ever fought over like who got a surgery or who got to do something like that, like a special well, surgery? Well, I'm sure among the residents, and Jason, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, they, they want the broadest experience possible. Okay. And they keep a case list. And if they're lacking in one area and they see a case on the schedule, they'll want to do that. And they'll, they'll I mean, a fourth year will pull rank on a second year, a fifth year will pull rank on a third year. Now, you, you, you have to uh, get the broadest uh, experiences by, by generating this case list for review when you're done. And then uh, certain cases... And certain cases are bigger cases and more exciting and more fun cases. And and then certain attendings are more fun to work with. So, you know, occasionally it doesn't happen at our level, but it happens at the resident level or the med student level when when you're coming up and you see an attending that you like to work with and you think is great, who's doing an amazing case. You, there is some rivalry. Hey, I want that case. No, I want that case. Among, among the residents there is, but you can learn at, at, by the way, you know, that resident we worked with the other day, yeah. I always end the case. I say, I want you to email me 10 things you learned from this case. I want you to email me the 10 most common complications. Very few of the residents ever respond. This kid responded. I saw that. So he, gets, that. Uh, he gets a note to the program director. He's yeah. got, you know, he's, he's got uh, curiosity. And that kid supposedly, unless I'm mistaking him with another kid, they, they have this, the, for the residents, they do this skills challenge where they have to practice on the robot not with people and laparoscopically, not with real people, with, with demos and computer things. And supposedly, if, if, it's, if I'm not mistaken, he's the kid who wins it every time, which is interesting. I think that's the kid. I'll have to double check. But you guys get to pick who assists you, right? Like, so do you have people like fighting for your attention or is that not something that happens? Like well, in the, 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 the attending surgeon 
The surgeon of record can choose the assistant. The residents are assigned. Okay. Yeah. So uh, it's, uh, I learned a lot from assisting. Uh, I, I learned a lot from assistants that I used at the peak of my career. And I, I learned a lot uh, assisting the other, the other uh, surgeons. Well, one thing, we keep rambling, but one thing about assisting is I think it's an underrated, underestimated, oh. underappreciated Underpaid. Job. Underpaid. Underpaid, too. And I think if you have a great assistant, the surgery goes smoothly. And, and go, Leo, did you just pass out there? Are you okay? <laughs> no, I'm fine. I just... Uh, amazing. Are you doing a deep knee bend? No, it's, a, it's, it's amazing the... The stuff that you know winds up in your in your home office. This is, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> there you go. That's nice. Back in my back in my back in my hockey days. That's upsetting. I don't have a ranger thing to combat you with right now, unfortunately. Okay, you talk about you talk about great quotes. I was in Chicago when the Blackhawks were really on a roll, and uh, you're talking about mistakes and errors. And they, Chicago had a fabulous goalie by the name of Tony Esposito. Was Bill fabulous. Esposito's brother. Bill Esposito's brother. So somebody asked him, I'll never forget this. Somebody asked him in the Chicago Tribune. They said, uh, Tony, what is it like being a goalie in the National Hockey League? And he said, look at it this way. How would you feel if you're at work and you made a mistake and a red light went on and 16,000 people groaned? <laughs> I think that's... That, that distills it. Yeah. Anyhow, well, listen, good luck with your future podcast. You've, co you've, you've covered, you covered I, I'm not, still not quite sure what an influencer is, <laughs> but, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm working on them. You That's covered, you, Leo. You're the influencer. I am hardly that. I, I am on Twitter. I have three followers. I follow <laughs> myself. And, and my, you haven't my banned film. you from Twitter yet? I'm sorry? You haven't been banned <laughs> from Twitter yet? No, you, you interviewed Clapper. You had the holistic ophthalmologist you had women's health month uh it's very yeah. thank you very much for doing this show we really appreciate you taking time out of your saturday my pleasure and i'll forward you the podcast on how the organs got their name you get a kick out of those yes please thank you okay thanks, good luck. Leo. enjoy the rest of the weekend bye-bye that's it for this week thanks for listening to gross anatomy and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can check out more episodes on the evolving sights smells and sounds of medicine Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.